Maturity by Sinclair Ferguson, chapter 3, Abiding in Christ. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Basing his teaching on John chapter 15, Ferguson makes the point that abiding in Christ is the key to spiritual maturity and fruitfulness. But before he addresses the topic of what abiding in Christ means and looks like, he speaks about the need to be united to Christ like Paul would teach as well, being in Christ, and then how when we're in Christ, we are pruned and cultivated with by the Father. So now in part two, we come to look at abiding in Christ, beginning on page 47. We must think further about our union with Christ if we're to grasp the balance of Jesus' teaching. Thus far, we've said little about our response to what God does, our responsibility is to grow in grace. This is achieved, we are told, by abiding in Christ. John uses this verb, variously translated as abide, remain, stay, continue or dwell, as often as all of the other New Testament writers put together. Jesus' command is, abide in me and I will abide in you. John 15, 4, 5, 6, 7, 9 and 10. He explains what is involved in this mutual indwelling. You abide in me, John 15, 4. If you obey my commands, you will abide in my love, 15, 10. I will abide in you, 15, 4. If my words abide in you, 15, 7. Abiding in Christ, living in union with him, drawing all our spiritual resources from him, involves allowing his word to abide in us. That is, to fill our minds and affections and dominate our lives. If we understand this, it will save us from overly mystical ideas of what abiding in Christ means. Jesus is talking about fellowship with him that is marked by resolute, spirit-enabled obedience to God's word a willing submission of heart, soul, mind and strength to the Lord and his revealed will.
There's an interesting parallel to this in Paul's teaching about being filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5.18. In Ephesians he gives no explanation of how this is to be achieved, but he does indicate that its fruit will be found in the praises and mutual encouragements of God's people. In the twin letter to the Colossians, Paul discusses the same themes. In both Ephesians and Colossians, he instructs Christians about life and marriage, family and daily work. He also speaks about the way we express our praise in song. In Ephesians, this results from being filled in the Spirit. But in Colossians, he uses a different command. Not be filled with the Spirit, but let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Colossians 3.16 There seems to be a clear equation of terms here. Ephesians, be filled with the Spirit, equals... Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. But here we might also add another parallel statement. Be filled with the Spirit equals let the word of Christ abide in you equals abide in Christ. So we go on abiding in Christ not by the kind of mysticism that evacuates our minds, but by our minds, hearts, affections and wills being immersed in God's word. Thus we can say there's a further parallel. Abide in Christ equals Let his word abide in you by ongoing obedience to it. If our spiritual growth depends on this, what are the implications? First of all, let the word be absorbed by your mind. Christ has spoken his word to us so that his joy might be in us and our joy may be full, John 15, 11. Feeding our minds with the word of Christ is essential if our hearts are to be filled with the joy of Christ. Yet despite this, we're all too slow to read and meditate on the scriptures, to seek to master them as far as we can and in the process be mastered by them. There's no substitute here for dogged daily discipline. It is a battle to find the time. It can be a harder battle to fight sloth. But we need to overcome the habit of reading scripture only when we feel like it. For in one sense, it is an acquired taste. Only when we learn to read and meditate on it, no matter what we feel like, will we actually begin to feel like reading it. Scripture is medicine for our sick souls. The label says take daily, not take when you feel like it. If we only do the latter, it is likely that we will never feel better. If we are to do that, we need to learn how to read God's word with understanding and how to apply it in our lives. So secondly, learn to read scripture properly. The Bible is not a book of Christian magic in which isolated verses leap out of the page on a random basis that in some mysterious way happens to be appropriate for our condition each day. This apparently random relevance can happen. It did so in a monumental way for Augustine, or Augustine, as the Americans would say. But what God brings to pass in sovereign providence should not become the rule by which we always act. Instead, we must learn to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, to quote the common book of prayer, the scripture's contents. We therefore need to learn how correctly 
to handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. If its riches are to profit our lives and its transforming power take root in our minds, mould our thinking and consequently shape our living. The importance of a right approach to reading the Bible can be illustrated by the unhappy experiences of two people. Both experiences show us how important it is for us to use the Bible the way God intended, not as it were a book of disconnected pieces of spiritual guidance. Example 1. A young man is contemplating marriage. He happens to turn in his Bible to Jeremiah 16. These words leap out of the page. Quote, the word of the Lord came to me. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. End quote. Jeremiah 16, 1-2. What is he to make of this? He has already developed a close friendship, which he hopes will lead to marriage. Is God now speaking to him in a new and direct way? The words, you shall not take a wife, seem to latch onto his mind. Is God speaking through this passage of scripture? Yes, he is. But fortunately, the young man thinks the matter through in order to understand what it is exactly that God is saying and to whom. He asks himself important questions. He goes back to first principles. On what grounds had he believed that God was leading him to think of marriage? Do these seem biblical and good? Then they continue to stand. What then does he make of this text in Jeremiah that speaks of you shall not take a wife? He recognises that it was spoken at a particular time to a particular individual. By no stretch of the imagination can it apply to all. Conceivably circumstances could arise in which it might apply but never simply as a sentence on its own. There's no reason these words apply to him in the same literal way they did to Jeremiah, although he rightly recognises their challenge to him to be willing to sacrifice anything for the Lord. The young man understands that God's word is not composed of random words of guidance that should be applied without taking their context into account. He comes to see that his own anxiety to do the Lord's will, coupled with a wrong approach to discerning that will, could easily have led him astray and caused both misunderstanding and unhappiness. He recovers, reads and applies the teaching of Jeremiah to his own life. Serving the Lord calls for sacrifice, sometimes unusual and great sacrifices. He resolves to live in full obedience to the Lord and continues his friendship, which eventually leads to marriage. Moves on, therefore, a little shaken, but wiser and stronger as a result. And he takes to heart the need to hold all of God's gifts with an open hand. Example 2. A mother sits reading Isaiah 47, on which she's been asked to speak on a future occasion. She and her husband have five children whom they love deeply. But they are not all at home with her at the moment passage she's studying contains these words of divine judgment against Babylon. Quote, now therefore hear this you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart I am and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure. Isaiah 47 verses 8 and 9. The words overwhelm her like a flood. God's word talks about losing both spouse and children. The next two days she is almost paralysed with fear and distress. This is God's word after all. He speaks through it. She cannot escape from the pressure of such a warning. But then thankfully she goes back to first principles of understanding scripture. 
She examines the context. God is speaking to Babylon, the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. But she is not God's enemy. She is God's child. It dawns on her that she has taken these words out of context. And of course, out of context, they seem to stir up the underlying fears she shares with many women. Perhaps as was the case with Jesus in his wilderness temptations, Satan has had a hand in twisting scripture before her very eyes. How like him to paralyse God's children with fear. And how like him to bend scripture to his own ends. But now, in the light of a proper understanding of scripture, her mind begins to rest again in God's care for her and for her family. He has promised to be with them. Peace is restored. These examples pinpoint the issue. If the word of God is to shed light on our lives, to give guidance, direction, comfort and understanding, we must learn to read it properly and let its truth, understood in its biblical context, engage and direct our thinking and our feelings. The third way to abide in Christ. Let the word influence your will. Alongside a confused approach to reading God's word, our chief weakness with respect to letting God's word indwell us is a failure to bow our wills in obedience to it. Too often our minds are the slaves of our feelings. If so, our wills will soon be captured by them too. When we live on the basis of feelings that have never been trained and disciplined by God's word, we grow spiritually weak. True, we may feel strong, but if our lifestyle choices depend on what we feel, we are in fact weak. We then begin to confuse our own feelings, desires and aspirations with God's will. It is just here that scripture is given to us for correction. 2 Timothy 3.16 the word implies the notion of straightening out or restoration. Applying the precepts and principles of scripture with the Spirit's help leads to a life of obedience and ultimately to Christ-likeness. Growing a fruitful vine is not easy. If vines and their branches could speak, we would hear them say that it is not all plain sailing from their perspective either. Dwelling or abiding in Christ is, is not a form of psychological relaxation. It's not the Christian equivalent of transcendental meditation. It does not mean emptying the mind, but rather cleansing and filling it with God's word. Fixing our minds on it and allowing it to fill our affections. It is never a mindless activity. Its goal is not a physiological release from personal tensions, but knowing and doing God's will. As Christians, we will want to be familiar with the divine pattern for spiritual growth. Here in John 15, Jesus reveals it. It is rooted in our union with him. It grows through the Father's pruning. It calls disciples to abide in Christ which means allowing his word to take up residence in our lives. When these principles work their way into our experience, we will discover the lasting enjoyment of our spiritual privileges. To some of these, we will turn in the chapters that follow.